So I'm sat here at Soto Pizza in Walthamstow with uh, a new author and my 12th guest, Jack Brown. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming out to see me. Tell us what accounts for this choice. Yeah, I mean, we're sat outside on a beautiful day. I'm afraid it's not quite a corner table, uh, but I did... I did um, grew up in this neck of the woods i've lived all my life in in walthamstow and chingford so this little corner of of northeast london and it's uh it has changed a lot this is kind of former industrial turned uh very very trendy kind of laid back place but uh staff here are lovely i don't eat out a great deal but when you asked where my favorite place to eat out was i was like i'm gonna make him come out to walthamstow so in addition to being the researcher in residence at number 10, you are also a lecturer in London studies at <laughs> King's College London. Yeah, I actually work part-time at King's College as a lecturer in London studies. They've created the title for me for, for the next couple of years, so uh, fingers crossed I, I cling on to that. But my PhD was in history of Docklands, so the East End, um, how that was transformed in the 1980s, uh, when the docks shut down, Canary Wharf emerged. Um, so I've kind of got an interest in London that comes from that and uh, London's history and also its governance. I also work part-time at the Centre for London where I'm a research manager and I was research in residence in 2016 at number 10. Uh, I was the first. Uh, There's now a a, a lovely new uh, research in residence, Michelle Clement, who's uh, fantastic, who's taken on the mantle. But it took me a little while to write out the book, which is why uh, we are where we are today. How did you get such an extraordinary job? How did it even come about? Well, as with most things in life, I guess, you know, I was very, very fortunate. It's a lot of luck. Since I did my master's years and years ago at Queen Mary, I worked with something called the Mile End Group, which became the Strand Group when it moved over to King's College London. Um, It's directed by uh, Dr. John Davis, who's sort of a a bit of a mentor to me. Uh, Took me under his wing years ago, uh, supervised my PhD. And for some time, we've done work with Number 10 Downing Street on its history. Uh, And uh, in early 2016, when things were actually quite chilled out, if you can remember, people in Number 10 who were interested in history were like, let's see what we can do. Let's let's, let's, uh, come up with this new project, this new role. Uh, It was meant to be um, a piece of research that would be turned into a series of blogs, which I did, based around the archives of uh, the architect Raymond Erif, who was... uh, the architect who led like the redesigning of number 10 in the 1960s which is quite interesting in itself but it kind of led to all these wider questions about like you know the, how does the building affect what goes on inside it and that kind of mushroom escalated very rapidly into that's a, exactly what i'd like us to explore in this conversation and by in residence i take it you actually spent time living in number 10 I um, get this question a lot and uh, the title is one that I'm going to repeat for the rest of my life and I'm going to keep using on my CV forever. Um, But But it comes with a disclaimer. It comes with a massive disclaimer. They didn't uh, put you up or charge you rent. They didn't put me up um, and I'm sure they would have had to charge me a lot of rent. Uh, (laughs) Number 10 is a really, really small place with very sort of limited office space, which is under um, intense competition at all times. You know, it's one of the things that comes from in the book. Um, because of its sort of small and slightly strange uh, layout, there's only a sort of limited amount of rooms um, which people really fight it out to uh, to occupy where you get the best access. So uh, we've got we've got some company. Hello, <laughs> I'll I'll have what you're having. Right, what's it called? Wicker Man, please. That looks good. Could I get a wild card, please? As well? What's a wild card? Uh, wild card is a brewery that's just around the corner. Excellent. I'll uh, I'll have one of those as well. Thank you. That's thank you very much. Um, so we were talking about 
the in-residence idea. In, in short, you know, there's, there's not quite enough space uh, for little Jack Brown in there. This is a great book, not just a book for history buffs, not just a book for wonks. By the time you finish it, you really feel as though you've been hanging around inside number 10 for a long time. I have to say, though, I struggle to visualise exactly how everything connects inside the building. Mm. I wish there had been a map I could have consulted. Was this something you wanted to include, or was this forbidden by the Ministry of Defence? <laughs> That's a, a naughty question. It's something that I, I, I would have liked to have done. I, I did my very best to kind of do a, a map of words. But number 10 are understandably a little bit cautious about floor plans and, thing, and things like that. One of the reasons why the project existed in the first place is because they wanted to kind of open number 10 up to the wider world a little bit. Um, obviously, since the security gates at the end of the, of the road went up in uh, 1989 uh, in response to kind of IRA mm. terrorist threat, uh, it's, there's always been a sense that it's a little bit closed off. I mean, it's not compared to other, other comparable buildings in other countries, um, but... There is a level of security that's kind of necessary, obviously, to meet that balance between it being a kind of really ordinary, normal place um, on a normal street and quite open. So, yeah, unfortunately, no map this time around. So this book, in a sense, is a literary concession. Nice way of putting it. You'd probably be better at selling this book than I would, actually. (laughs) They're doing a great job. Let's delve briefly into the history of the building. We're talking 340 years old, constructed in the 1680s, somewhere between the death of William Shakespeare and the start of the Industrial Revolution. So effectively, the UK has been governed from number 10 from around the end of the feudal system in England, right up to where we are in today's world of high-speed broadband. Quite a significant period, lots going on in between. But if you will, take us back to the start. How did number 10 begin its life? So it's built... Downing Street was developed by a guy called Sir George Downing, um, who was essentially a spy or a diplomat, I guess would be the more formal Oliver Cromwell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then flipped straight back after the restoration, changed sides. Um, Most famous comment on him was from Samuel Pepys, who worked for him, who uh, described him as a perfidious rogue. Left a paltry sum (laughs) to his former university of about five pounds. Yes, miser. Then, I don't know how much that would have been, but still, it wasn't very much. It would have been more, but it's not incredible. Mm. Yeah, he's, 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 he's got a, um, a pretty bad reputation, but apparently historians are kind of rehabilitating him now. But yeah, yeah, he's a guy who was, who was sort of famous for treachery more than anything else. Um, he acquired this patch of land from the Crown. Uh, he's after it for years and years and years, and he eventually gets it uh, end of the uh, 1600s, and between 1682 and 1684. It develops a cul-de-sac of little terraced houses, um, that are built pretty cheaply, pretty lightly, um, on pretty marshy ground. The Thames ten, was a lot wider then, uh, hadn't really been tamed. Yes, I thought about this when I was reading it and realised that, much like the White House, Downing Street 2 is built on a swamp. Yeah, well, let, hey, you've got to be careful with the analogies. That there's, there's a temptation to do an awful lot, to read a lot into that particular point that you've just made there, actually. But yeah, they were both built on, on marshy ground, no doubt. Um, and Downing Street was built with really shaky foundations. It was, it was thrown up pretty cheaply. Um, Downing died in 1684, so he doesn't really get to see the uh, benefit of these houses. They're going to be rented out. Um, they're built to, to turn a profit. Uh, and he uh, doesn't get to see them. They revert back. The land reverts back to the crown. And in 1732, um, the king presents them to the man who's widely thought to have been the first Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, mm. um, as a kind of a favour. Because, you know, uh, at that point, there's no formal job 
title for, for, called Prime Minister. It's actually used as an insult, you know, for a uh, politician that's seen as uh, getting ideas above their station, you know. Oh, he thinks he's the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, but Walpole obviously was a favourite and, uh, and the King gave him it as a gift. Walpole refused to accept it as a personal gift um, and accepted it instead of in his, in his official role. Uh, the title was First Order of the Treasury, and that's, that's what's right. still on the, on the front door. Mm. And that today is, is kind of synonymous with the role of Prime Minister. It's a separate role, but it basically means Prime Minister these days. And that's the other thing that's really interesting about this book. It explains the concept of a Prime Minister. Yeah, well, it's, it is, um, doesn't turn up in, in statute, you know, until I think 1917, I think, of, from memory. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not. It's not. A, most of the British Constitution is not written down, or it's written down in many different places. Right. It's it's evolved over time. It's ever changing, much like the building. And so you know, it's 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 a good kind of hook to, to talking about how the Premiership came to be. Um, I think the building also reflects that as well. That it's not the home for a presidential leader. It's a home for a. I mean, compared to the White House, it's pretty humble. It's pretty normal, right? Perhaps to aid that visual block I mentioned earlier. Can you give us a concise audio tour of the building from memory, including all of the four P's? Private office. Private office. Which is the kind of civil service neutral bit. The political office, which is uh, dealing with party and, and, and parliament. Uh, the press office, dealing with the media, obviously. And the policy unit, which turns up in the 70s, which is a kind of policy advice for the prime minister. So we go through the big black door. And what do we see? Straight away, very famous kind of entrance hall, which you get a peek of quite often. Um, black and white checkered, checkered floor. Uh, at this point, um, you will possibly have got to knock on the front door, possibly not. There's a security guard on the inside with a, a CCTV camera, just watching it to see if somebody approaches and open it sort of magically. So if you're a foreign dignitary or if you're a, a minister who's in good favour uh, <laughs> you walk up to the door and it'll magically open in front of you make you look very very powerful um, that obviously occasionally is missed or oh, the cat goes through there as well that's uh, right Larry the cat yep, can't he, forget him he mystically uh, opens the door with the powers of his mind as well um, so you go in uh, straight ahead of you is a corridor that leads to the what was originally the house at the back, the much grander house. So number ten is uh, that little bit, the little terraced house at the front, which is connected to eleven and twelve, and it's the kind of famous bit that you see on the news. Um, but down that corridor, you walk into a larger house that was connected to this original house at the front. Uh, in in a in a kind of an offset square. So there's a corridor that goes ahead. Then there's a house at the back. And there's a corridor on the other side. It's like a big offset square around the courtyard. Very difficult to imagine, but you can see that on Google Maps. On Google Earth. pieces of the puzzle are coming together for me now. <laughs> so if you go straight ahead down that corridor, this is where the kind of operational centre is uh, of Number Ten, where the cabinet room is, with the private office at one side and the political office at the other, another side. Um, historically, you know, the prime minister would work at the, at the cabinet table. And then at one end, you had the private office giving the kind of uh, politically neutral advice, management of your diary, making sure that everything's manageable, that you get all the information you need. And at the other end, from the 60s onwards, uh, you've got the political office giving you political advice and kind of vying for your attention. Um, Harold Wilson started off working in the cabinet table and he had those two competing interests at either end. And he, uh, uh, over time, he decided, this is getting a little bit much for me. Went upstairs um, and worked in the study, which is a little bit more secluded. So that's one, f one floor up. 
Thank you. What have we got here, Jack? The Wicker Man. What, what's on this pizza? I can see pepperoni here. I can see some sort of mascarpone. Go ahead. The thing that I like about this that makes me interested in it is Scotch bonnet jam, which is a very strange kind of like incredibly hot pepper, but in a honey rather than jam. So it's a very sweet yet spicy sauce. Excellent. Excellent. Sweet and spicy. I love that combination. All right, let's dig in. The, the sweet and savoury thing is, is something that we're, we're famous for in Wolfenstein. It's chili jam made by uh, Eat17, which is the postcode here, not just the boy band, which is also something we're famous for. You know, I was watching Eat17 at Glastonbury when I found out that Michael Jackson died. No way! Before everyone had a smartphone, word was getting round imperfectly shall we say so that so that you know you heard people turning to each other saying did you know michael fish the weatherman michael fish has died no no janet jackson janet jackson just she died by the end of the evening everyone knew that it was in fact uh, the king of pop (laughs) (laughs) so i suppose it's 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 easy to forget that we're not just talking about a building here i mean winston churchill famously said and it's a quote used in the book we make our buildings and then our buildings make us I mean, you could almost call this office politics in the most literal sense, Mm. couldn't you? Because it's the physical realities of Number 10 that so often produce the politics. How would you describe, given the access you've had, that symbiotic relationship between the building and the politics within? Yeah, it brings back to an earlier point about um, not being able to be fully in residence. (laughs) You know, the the, the first point is that this was a uh, small, uh, cheaply built house designed as a house, not as a place of work and not as a place uh, of, uh, of residence for anyone of, of particular note. But it was really, really uh, not designed for its current purpose. And so its small size has a huge impact because that's, to a large extent, why we've got uh, a, a limit to the amount of people that uh, surround the Prime Minister. You know, President is kind of a famous image uh, slightly overplayed, but you know, things like West Wing, you know, presence walking around swamped by advisors. Will you sign this? Will you sign this? Uh, the, the British Prime Minister and the operation around him is a lot smaller, it's a lot more intimate. Um, and that's, that's a way that the building has a massive direct impact. Um, also, in terms of uh, who has access, there's only a few people who will actually be physically located close to the Prime Minister. So that's a, that's a big thing as well. And, and who would they be ordinarily? Ordinarily, throughout the period that I looked at, um, it's it's about keeping the private office right next to the Prime Minister. So the private office serves as a kind of funnel, filtering all the information through the house, comes down down the stories, you know, uh, floor by floor. It comes comes in into uh, his his or her in tray, and uh, the the private office are key to sort of sorting that all out, filtering it, making it manageable for the Prime Minister. So it's all kind of built around wherever the Prime Minister is. Um, except when it isn't, except when they're a bit of a wanderer, except when they have erratic working habits. Um, Churchill's really famous for that. Churchill, you know, worked worked from bed an awful lot, worked from the bath quite a bit, um, particularly during the Second World War. He was all over the place, but even in his second premiership, he uh, was quite an erratic figure, and that kind of throws it out a little bit, makes it more interesting. What were the most poignant personal stories you uncovered? Were there others that perhaps shocked you, made you see certain leaders differently? It, it wasn't necessarily a shock, but the kind of reading about the atmosphere under Eden, not just the Suez crisis, but the stuff around Suez crisis as well, means that he's a, he's a pretty unhappy man. And the way that kind of permeates through the house, uh, Clarissa Eden, 
uh, said that she felt like the Suez Canal was flowing through her room in number 10 at, at times, you know. Mm. Um, the whole sort of operation sort of fell apart and how, it, how much it kind of affected the mood of everyone in the house and how much of an unhappy place it was, I guess, is kind of something that I felt really came through and it's that it really like, underlines how uh, unusual the kind of live-work arrangement uh, is and how kind of intimate and exposing it is. Also, just the the turnover between prime ministers and how often you know a new prime minister will come in and see tears on the cheeks of the people that are, are clapping them in because it's such a brutal process and they regardless of the politics of it uh if you work in number 10 you work in someone's home and you get to know them and you get to know their family and you know it's just it, it really underlines the kind of the, the fact that these are these are people you know the politics aside these are all relatively ordinary people not all of them are entirely ordinary but uh, you know they are they are human beings and uh, there is that kind of interpersonal element to life at number 10 that's that's different to other government departments other other places of work yeah number 10 is described early on in the book by harold wilson's former private secretary as being both a dreadful and exciting place in mm-hmm. which to live and work Others really took to it and made it their own. Thatcher's redecorations were bold. Do you think her being the first female prime minister gave her license to make Number Ten more her own than her predecessors? Mm. Yeah, I think there could, there could be something in that. Definitely. I mean, the main thing I think about Thatcher was that she was there so long, and so uh, if you're there for a long time, uh, you, you just increase your chances of being there when a, a sort of periodic renovation is needed. But Thatcher's the one that kind of threw. I had a theory. Um, that kind of came through some of the reading, some of the memoirs, that uh, both Douglas Hume and uh, Macmillan, kind of quite aristocratic backgrounds, mm. quite comfortable in Number 10 because they're used to having servants. Um, they're used to living with people who, who work for them. Uh, and Harold Wilson and Mary Wilson, by contrast, were really un- quite uncomfortable with that and the, and the kind of the level of uh, intrusion and the lack of privacy and so Wilson, in his second term, he didn't live there. Uh, he lived he lived around the corner and commuted in by car every day because Mary Wilson didn't didn't very much like uh, the invasion of privacy. So I was thinking, I had this this idea that kind of you know, uh, if you're from a humble background, living at number ten might be a bit weird and that might put you at a disadvantage. But Thatcher kind of froze that. She's from a relatively um, humble background mm. but she as she put it in her phrase she was used to living above the shop and so uh, she absolutely loved it and also took it very seriously felt that it should really reflect the kind of seriousness and the grandness of, of the role itself so rather than being you know intimidated by it she thought it was not intimidating enough you know she put a lot into a uh, ensuring that the decoration there's something that every prime minister gets to do is influence the artwork the kind of more temporary stuff mm. that's displayed so she had a lot of kind of British scientists British military heroes um, that's right was it Nelson and Wellington yeah. on the walls <laughs> all those guys that she's very happy to show to the French when they come round just <clears throat> seen that guy over there do you remember that she's, <laughs> she's not, not subtle in her approach to uh, projecting power but um, she had that that view of it and then when there is a renovation needed in the staterooms, which are the kind of the rooms upstairs uh, on the on the first floor, that are once upon a time were the bedrooms, but are now used for entertaining, they're for parties and events and stuff. When they need renovating, she has a big influence on getting them really sort of blinged up, <laughs> gets them gets a lot of sort of gold detailing put in, gets them looking very 
almost regal. A lot of civil servants around at the time found it a bit distasteful, you know, a bit worried that she's getting delusions of grandeur. Yeah, I think it was, it was it Sarah Hogg, head of policy unit under Major, described Downing Street as being sort of half round-haired parliamentarian and half mm. royalist. I think perhaps that royalist touch was very much Thatcher's doing, wasn't it? That gilded edge that she gave everything. Yeah, yeah, and it did meet with such... Um, controversy at the time you know again this is this is the kind of conflict between this incredible history and arguably and generally the, the most powerful role in the country you know not at sometimes the prime minister is uh, first amongst equals but you know if the cabinet turns against them they can feel very powerless it's a, it's a complicated relationship and it, and it was an antagonistic relationship between thatcher and her cabinet particularly yeah. towards the end exactly and to some extent the humbleness of the place reflects that and reminds you that mm. you know you're not a president you're not the queen mm. um, which is why just putting a little bit of gold leaf in caused quite a lot of controversy yeah, because yeah. there's one quote in particular i really like from norman tebbit who ironically is the man who ran margaret thatcher's 1987 campaign he said that the windows of number 10 tend gradually to shrink over the course of a prime minister's time in office until as he puts it the pm can't really distinguish between the outside world and the world within number 10 do you think that perhaps having to pick up in exactly the same place may breed a certain conformity even fatalism about the job tony blair describes coming into power at your, at your most popular and therefore you're kind of most able to do things but you're least experienced you're you don't know how to you have all that backing from the public but you don't have the ability to pull all the levers and over time inevitably your popularity wanes as you learn exactly what you want to do and how to do it and that's just one of the sad kind of ironies of that any prime minister that stays for a certain period of time that's going to happen to um, they get tired of you. It doesn't matter who you are. It uh, doesn't matter what you think of a particular politician. If they're prime minister for a certain amount of time, they're going to start, people are going to want change, you know. So it's a kind of sad, sad irony um, of, of the job and why so many, I think, leave feeling quite unhappy with what they've done. And you do, you, you are asking people to conform because you're putting them in a house and you're mm. saying you've got to live here and you've got to work with the people that are here and half of them are civil servants and you don't know them and you've got to get used to that uh, you know it's the most practical way of doing it well it wouldn't be your first time at number 10 Jack maybe there is space yet for little Jack Brown <laughs> <laughs> on the point about access to power we're in rather unprecedented territory <laughs> Dominic Cummings is Boris Johnson's key advisor he's written in his blog about the need for an overturn in Whitehall to bring the civil service down several pegs and, of course, he's managed in a day to secure full access to Johnson, where many civil servants spend their entire careers vying for the Prime Minister's attention. So I'm going to ask that most crucial and most difficult question. How do we understand what the book tells us based on the current disruption we're seeing? Sure. I mean, in terms of, I guess, a historical precedent, um, when Wilson went into number 10, I guess that was probably one of the more suspicious um, teams entering number 10 in terms of how they viewed uh, and how particular, particularly uh, Marcia Williams, his, his personal political secretary, viewed the civil service. Uh, she particularly thought that they would try and kind of capture the prime minister. Um, they wanted to be a radical, you know, socialist government um, uh, and that the kind of the establishment would kind of capture him and talk him out of things and making sure he didn't see people. I don't think... Um, if you enter with the idea that they're out to get you uh, so far in history I don't think anyone's left with that idea because the civil service is you know politically neutral it is an incredible thing it's a, a real ideal it's not a plot 
Uh, the, the civil service are an apolitical and a very, uh, I think it's a very sort of admirable uh, cause that they, that they have to just kind of serve whoever's in charge. And that's the thing, going back to the turnaround between prime ministers, you know, they turn over incredibly quickly and the same people are there to help them do their job as best as they can. They're not the enemy. So tell us about the, the renovation to number 10 that was the inspiration behind the book. Yeah, the, um, so the original purpose of, of, of my research, as my role as research and residence, was to look at um, the archives in, in the Royal Institute of British Architects, their archives, uh, architect called Raymond Eriff, who was responsible for redesigning number 10 when it had to be totally rebuilt in the uh, late 1950s, between 57 and 63, so during uh, Harold Macmillan's time. Uh, what what was so interesting about this is that uh, they seriously considered knocking the whole place down and starting again and it's kind of the only time in the building's history they've considered doing that seriously uh, it's because it was in such an incredibly bad state I mean the uh, there was how a, bad? well there was a serious risk that uh, the cabinet would be meeting one day and they'd fall through the floor I mean there's also the, in those staterooms that I mentioned earlier on the, on the first floor um, when you're entertaining people you can have like a you get a couple of hundred people in them across these three rather large rooms. Uh, you used to have to make sure that a couple of civil servants uh, were circulating constantly. And if they saw too big a group of people congregating together, they'd just go over there and just be like, oh, have you seen uh, over there? Just subtly split them apart, make sure there's not too much weight on one part of the floor. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> in case really? it causes a collapse. Yeah, it's a fire risk. It's, it's, also, it's been damaged during the war. Um, it's really long beyond time. And like the history of number 10 up to this period, ever since uh, first prime minister moved in, is a history of constant little repairs, just fixing little bits as they go, because it was never built to a decent standard. Um, and once you're, you've got someone in there, it's, it gets increasingly hard to do work around them. So who is the landlord of number 10? Is it the state? Is it really the electorate? Is it both in a weird sort of way? That's a fascinating point. Yeah, who who owns number ten? I guess we do. I guess we do to a large extent um, as 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 taxpayers, as the British people. Um, it is the it is the electorate. The electorate certainly decides who the tenant is, um, or they do in normal times. Um, obviously, in a coalition situation that becomes more complicated, and in a situation that's likely to happen at some point in the near future, I imagine if kind of opinion polls are looked at um, what the electorate is trying to say is going to be a lot harder to understand right it's going, we've, we're currently polling with kind of four parties who are all looking at sort of 20 something percent um, in which case it's going to be very hard to work out who they want in number 10 but that's not historically that's not generally how the British system's worked it's designed to the extent that it is designed at all you know uh, it thrives on strong majority government that you can kick out at the next election. That's kind of what you, what the system is designed to do. Uh, it's to give you quite a lot of power. The leader of the party that has a majority, that can command a majority, can kind of not do what they want, but has a decent chance of getting their agenda through. They get a certain amount of time to do that then there'll be another election if you don't like it you can kick them out and that's kind of um, teaching students at King's about how British politics works that's you know we say that's the model and then you look at what's happening today and you go well (laughs) 
historically that's the model but now you know we're under real strain it's a really unprecedented time really interesting time um, and you've currently got a prime minister this has happened lots of times before this is not unprecedented at all but you've currently got a prime minister who uh, was elected in by the membership of his party you know by us not by the wider electorate um, obviously at some point there'll be a general election but you know it's not always the whole electorate I guess um, that said you know John Major did that as well Gordon Brown did that as well you know was in number 10 without a general election so it's far from unprecedented but it's yeah it's a really it's a really interesting kind of dynamic that isn't it it's, it's a really interesting dynamic and to the extent that the landlord chooses who the tenant is and can hear come out the landlord is definitely the electorate I'd like to know sort of how you feel about this building it must mm. be quite a mixture getting to know it in the detail you have I definitely started out thinking this is ridiculous this was not built for purpose this is uh, a very kind of British refusal to change anything <laughs> you know we used to rule the world we should keep everything exactly how it is we're kind of country that looks back a lot and thinks perhaps arguably that we are still as influential as we once were I saw it as a kind of symbol of, of, of looking backwards over time the more I learnt about it the more time I spent there the more I thought about it as well there is something about compared to other countries that it, it being a relatively humble residence it being not designed for its purpose you know it not being an ostentatious kind of display of uh, all the riches this country has or has had something really special about that I think and when you walk through and you think about the, the things that have gone on there it does it does stir the emotions a little bit it is something kind of special and uh, I think there's an interesting argument about the, the Houses of Parliament you know they're crumbling maybe we need to think about a different way of conducting business maybe but in terms of number 10 the message it sends to the wider world the, the message it sends to the next Prime Minister when they come in you're part of a long line of people to some extent you're nothing special I think that's a really powerful message and I think that's actually probably quite a positive message so I, I, I'm a convert I think overall I think I feel really really warmly towards the place and uh, if it's up to me you know long would it continue Jack Brown thank you very much thank you